Hey everybody, welcome back to the Off The Key Podcast. I'm your host, Mac, and today I'm joined by my oh-so-lovely co-hosts, Garrett. Don't light my fire, Mac. And Jane. I am not maternal. Yes, I've got him on the bandwagon. (laughs) Uh, And today we'll be talking about the technically debut studio album from Otoboke Beaver, an all-female Japanese punk band. How how do you mean that with, like, actual debut? For a little background, their first album, or first release as an LP, uh, Itakoma Hits, is actually a compilation album of their Bakuro Book and Love is Short EPs, as well as some new material. It's still a great album, still fantastic, highly recommend it, but Super Champon is their first full-length LP with all new material. Let me tell you, these ladies did not hold back. Oh my god, this album is brimming with energy. It is ridiculous. So they actually formed in 2009. The band formed while they were active in a music club at Ritsu Maikan University in Kyoto. So the original members consisted of, and these are their nicknames, this is what they go by. I actually couldn't find their real names online. The lead vocalist, Akko Rinrin, Yo-Yo-Yo Shie on guitar, Nishi Kawachi on bass, and Pop on drums. (laughs) So so Pop Pop. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a great name for a drummer. Um, now, that was their original lineup. Their lineup has actually changed since then. Please don't tell me they lost pop. They did lose pop. Fuck. Oh, my God. I'll uh, never recover from this. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll get to that in a second. The name actually is derived from a love hotel in Osaka near one of the band members' high schools. Of course it is. Nice beaver. Thanks. <laughs> Just got stuffed. <laughs> Um, they have a pretty long history. They've been around for almost 15 years. That's been surprising um, that they've been out that long and there's not really a whole lot of like solid studio material that they put out. Yeah, they've had a lot of like singles and EPs and a lot of demos that came out during the early 2010s, as well as a live album in 2012. And in March of 2013, they released a mini album called Love Me Sign. And that was when Nishi Kawachi left the band. She was replaced by Hiro Chen who was quite literally a fan who just emailed them and asked to join. That's awesome. Man, that's some straight up like also some like like Dickinson energy or you know stuff it was just like hey, I like you know fans oh, yeah. that want to be in the band. Yeah, wasn't that his story that he just wanted to be like in the band, he was in the audience and eventually they met and he like replaced their former singer. Like stories like that are just yeah. mind-blowing to me. I love stories. That's love what happened that. with the Who too. Keith Moon, he just like came up and was like I'm a better drummer than your drummer. <laughs> and of course, Pete would come to regret that decision when his eardrum was blown out later on. The the human capability of forgiveness sometimes cannot be under, understated. Like I would have, not only would we have thrown hands, I would have probably have never talked to him again. I just want you to know well, that if any of you guys like do that, even if you just did not have a thought in your mind that you could like the prank would go that wrong, I will literally never talk to you again. If like I am bodily not you, the same. So I actually didn't know about this. So can you like elaborate? What happened, it was a live performance on a television show. Without telling anyone, Keith Moon put dynamite in his bass drum. What the fuck? Yeah, so not are like, you serious? Yes, yeah, like, s- not even like a little like firecracker <laughs> popper. It like, was he actually put, like, actual dynamite. dynamite. <laughs> yeah, so the Who, of course, were famous at the time for destroying their instruments after a show. Yeah, which is what I believe in the was what Pete Townsend was actually going to do, you know, smash his guitar, mm-hmm. and then maybe, you know, he figured... Daltrey would kick over the mic stand, and you know Keith Moon would break a drum. Simple enough. That's what they've done. <laughs> no. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> he put dynamite in his bass drum. 
I, if I were in that situation, I don't think I would. I would have left yeah. the band probably. They honestly should have kicked Keith out of the band. Jeez, Louise. But anyway, we're uh, we're kind of getting off track here. So eventually, uh, they signed to the UK-based indie label Damably. They're a London-based label who has worked with a variety of underground acts such as Seisumi, Wussy, Kath Bloom, Bottomless Pit, Lone Lady, Omo, Shonen Knife, and many, many more. Um, the label is also strongly associated with John Peel. He was a famous English DJ who served as one of BBC's Radio One's longest-serving DJs. The like the Peel Smith, sessions, like the Peel sessions. Whoa, what a crazy! We had just mentioned them with like me talking about like that hat full of hollow record. Wow, small freaking world, man. Yeah, yeah. Damably assisted in helping with some of the acts that went on to go on to John Peel sessions and become popular. So, for those who don't know, John Peel's Peel sessions were where he'd have an artist come on and record four songs live at BBC Radio One's own studios. And oftentimes that was like the band's first exposure to the outside world or like worldwide exposure. The Peel sessions are historically very important. They're also very high quality. Those live performances, they're like the basement. Especially if they lay tracks down that were previously studio recorded elsewhere, the Peel sessions will be even better than those recordings. Some hallowed ground. Oh, yeah, like uh, the Aphex Twin Peel Sessions. Those are crazy. I don't know if you've heard those, but um, I actually wanted to get that shit on vinyl. Now, the band didn't go on to do any Peel Sessions, but the label was heavily associated with them. Now, the band, however, did record a live session for the popular British alternative rock radio station XFM and toured the UK with Shonen Knife and Leggy thanks to the assistance of Damably. Because of that, Otoboke Beaver was able to gain some notoriety and even had a charting single in the UK titled Love is Short. And speaking of short, that is what a lot of these songs are. That's pretty par for the course for hardcore punk. Yeah, in fact, there's yeah. not even a song that's over two and a half minutes. Yeah, this, this album as a whole is just barely over 20 minutes long. Although, I think this is what where punk is really good because most punk really needs to be that short. I mean, that's where... Kind of like them and the Misfits is that it's like it hits and then it just gives you exactly what you need and no more. And then it ends is very punctual and you get the essence of it and it does not drag on. Yeah, that's kind of the appeal of like even older acts like Minor Threat. Um, you know, a lot of their albums don't even scratch the 20 minute mark. And, you know, for if you're going to play, you know, either something that's like super high energy or if you're playing more like simplistic, like punk riffs and your instrumentals are going to be more repetitive. It's almost better to make it that short. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of a problem that a lot of modern, or not modern, like old school, like hardcore punk and punk acts had, is they had a very like one note sound that really couldn't evolve. So like a lot of times, a lot of punk bands would drop like one classic and then just fall off. A lot of early post-punk did that too, because they weren't, oh, yeah. they weren't as innovative. That's my biggest problem with some of like television's music is that they, they're not really as innovative as post-punk got later, and their songs just go on way too long. Punk, and especially hardcore punk, could easily wear out its welcome if it wanted to, but luckily most bands have the wherewithal to not do that, and I believe this is a very good case of that. Yeah, or they'll like branch out because they realize their sound is going to have to change or it's yeah. not going to be appealing. Now, we'll say one of the biggest nitpicks of this album is that Side B, the second half of this album, is the songs are way too short. They're almost like little snippets, and the pacing pretty much goes to hell in a handbasket. It doesn't really build off of anything. It's almost too short. Yeah, and we'll get to that in a second. I did kind of want to explain like their international success before we get into that. 
you know, they were touring with Damably, uh, and, and in the UK, they got their UK single, and eventually the group crowdfunded a tour internationally to perform at South by Southwest in 2017, as well as Coachella in 2018. And that is their first exposure in the U.S. And at that point, uh, Pop, the drummer, had left the band and was replaced by Kahokis, another rock commune club attendee. Okay, not a bad nickname. Still not as good as Pop, but we'll, we'll take it. Yeah. The band in general, they've gained a strong following in the U.K., U.S., and Japan for their fast-paced and aggressive punk style with anthemic group vocals. And they also mix in a lot of themes of, like, female oppression in modern society and a love-hate relationship with romance. They've got a pretty interesting background. So I was reading a translated interview with the lead singer, and she explained that they were inspired by a style of Japanese comedy called manzai, a traditional style in Japanese culture that involves two performers, a straight man and a funny man, who trade jokes at high speeds. Generally, the jokes involve mutual understandings, double talk, and puns. That reminds me actually kind of a lot of the old like Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis thing, where they Dean yeah. Martin was a straight man, Jerry Lewis was the funny man, it, and they just go back and forth. Exactly mm-hmm. that. I mean, it's, it's double-act comedy. And it kind of makes sense with the way they uh, structure their songs. Yeah, like, <laughs> like a lot of Otoboke's Beaver's music is hilarious. Like, it's satirical. Um, oftentimes, it's very much rooted in, like, you know, kind of this sardonicism towards... Yeah. Modern society. Modern society and romance and, and the expectations that a lot of women have in Japanese society and in society at large. They are very, like, very, like, pointed and, like, very, like, in yeah. your face. Yeah, in your face is uh, a great way to describe Otoboge Beaver's music. Oh, and yeah. for that, I respect that. So up to this point, you know, they got the hype. And then finally they released Itakoma Hits. So it was that compilation album I was talking about earlier with a little bit of fresh material. They got picked up by a couple of different uh, review outlets, including, I know we bring up Fantano a lot, but including Fantano, you know, Pitchfork talked about them and started to get a little more popular outside of their cult fan base. And this is where we lead into Super Champon. They had finally, after almost 15 years, I think 13 or 14 years, released their debut studio album. So this is technically their debut, and it was released on May 6th of 2022. Before we get into that, I would, I would like to shout out something that Otoboke B and a lot of other Japanese bands, especially J-Rock bands do, that I think is appreciated is that some of the barrier to um, entry for people to listen to foreign music is obviously the language barrier. Is obviously it's in a different language. That a lot of bands like Otoboke Beaver put in smartly placed English lyrics into their into their music that you can still get a gist of what the song is about, the energy, the tone. Just by that, even if you're not going to look into the lyric sheet at all, just as a surface level listen, you'll still be able to tell what it's about. And I think that the bands that do that, they open themselves up for more you know, international success and to have a more wider audience. I've never really felt like, even if I don't understand it, like you were saying, Garrett, I can still kind of get the gist and I can still appreciate it for what it is. And hopefully I can find the translations. Now that can be a problem. Uh, thankfully, I was able to find a good bit of them for this album. Um, you know, they are still rough translations. So, James, I know you made a joke about it earlier, but the opening track, I Am Not Maternal. Great music video. <laughs> oh, we, so uh, they hadn't seen the music video yet, and I showed it to them, and God, it's hilarious. I would recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this, you know, fever dream nightmare, you know, about the maternal expectations that are placed on Japanese women to, you know, have a child and 
and, you know, make them for your grandparents and your parents and everyone else. Yeah, like the <laughs> opening lines, like the, the rough translation is like, I deliver puppy, not a baby. I don't believe in my maternal instinct. Having let my parents meet their grandkid, their grandkid, their grandkid, I immediately put it back in my belly. And in the music video, you, <laughs> you literally see the, like the, the lead singer, she picks up this baby and just shoves it back into her. And that's kind of what we're saying is like, you know, it's pretty obvious what the song is about. They don't want kids. There are a lot of women who share that sentiment, but feel, I think, feel pressured to have kids because of societal expectations and because of their family members pushing it onto them. There's also, now I don't know how accurately translated it is, but there is also like a very subtle, actually kind of deep message within the song. Almost is like, is it abuse to have a kid that you do not want and that you're yeah. not, you don't want it and you aren't ready to take care of? Mm-hmm. Like if you can't properly parent and you have one anyway, is, is that child abuse? Yeah. Pretty intense stuff. And that's one yeah. thing I will say, like Beaver's lyrics, they're very direct, but there is a lot of layers. There's a lot of depth behind what they're saying. You know, they're just, just doing it in a in a punk rock way. Yeah, yeah. They're just, you know, punching you in the face with it. Very repetitive and high energy. They're screaming most of the time. But yeah, <laughs> the track itself, I mean, this is like classic punk rock style. You know, it's it's got a really fun bass line, uh, you know, that blast beat. Man, the bass player, she's fucking amazing. I mean, the drummer is too, but man, I love listening to that bass player. Yeah, as far as like the ones that didn't like impress me the most, the bass player has to have almost more stamina than all of them because like, Ser- she is so seriously. stupidly busy all the time. Yeah, yeah, and you can hear that on uh, Yakitori as well. Well, that, it's a bit of a smoother bass line, but it's you know it's just as crazy and infectious. Speaking of Yakitori, I love the content of this song. This is the funniest track of the album, but I swear to God, <laughs> it is about throwing Yakitori into someone's mailbox and admitting to it and apologizing for it. So explain to the audience, for those that don't know, what is yakitori? Uh, yakitori is a, is a type of uh, Japanese chicken skewer. It's very popular street food. So you're just throwing a meat skewer into someone's mailbox. But the thing is, it's <laughs> very, very punk rock. Yes. This is also, honestly, kind of one of the least hardcore punk songs yeah, on the record. It's very... It's more poppy, honestly, because yeah, of the, like, yep. of the like, chanting vocals. You know, the whole, like, I'm sorry, one day you're post-box throw into yakitori it's me it's me <laughs> that is the majority of the song but it's so infectious and it's so repetitive that it just gets stuck in your head this i mean great opening two songs i mean it just it establishes everything about them in just two tracks yep. oh yeah not to mention the explosive ending of that song of yakitori Oh yeah, yeah. It's just like whiplash, just insanity. <laughs> the the whole it is interesting because the the stops and starts, the shifts and like the pattern setting, then changing it and then making slight changes to it and then or just completely turning it on its head. Yeah, they're doing a lot of stop starting, is, a lot of like tempo changes, just like changes in rhythm, and it, it's very jarring. This t- this does like the exact opposite of math rock to my brain, whereas math rock is like. Oh yeah, give me that groove and keep it there. Yeah, I like that groove. This music and like visualize it. It's literally what a heart monitor will do if you're like shocking someone back to life, and it's just like up and down and just like all around. Like that is this music. There's a pattern being set for a very limited amount of time, and it just jumps around. And there are some sections like go nuts. Yeah, the pacing is completely frenetic, it's, but in a great way. Yeah, people are like, oh, what's the pacing of this album? Yes, 
<laughs> Whiplash. Exactly, exactly. Whiplash is the pacing Chaos. of this album. <laughs> Chaos. It's exactly what you want with a good punk album. And they even further demonstrate this with the title. So Champagne is actually a Japanese noun that means a mixture or a jumble of different types that is meant to represent their mixing of genres. And it makes sense because, I mean, there is like a lot of like genre bending elements here. You know, they're using like a lot of, you know, chanty like pop vocals and a lot of the start stopping and, you know, tempo and pace changes of something like, you know, math rock with this fiery energy. It's just a lot of fun. Like these guys are a lot of fun and they're extremely talented. There is a heavy hardcore punk influence here, especially with the track listing, you know, the way it's just so in your face and brutal and speedy. These guys really remind me of acts like Dead Kennedys. Nazi punks by like Dead Kennedys. I definitely get like a lot of that here in like its delivery. Yeah, like in the delivery and like the very satirical nature of a lot of their lyrics, the sarcasm, the really just outrageous vocal delivery style. Wasn't there a song they did or it was like a direct homage? Yeah, yeah, that's actually the next track, um, I Won't Dish Out Salads. So, fun fact, the opening of I Won't Dish Out Salads is an homage to California Uber Alice by Dead Kennedys. Yeah, I like it because I don't, I don't really like a lot of hardcore punk because I like that medium. I don't really like my hardcore punk to get into like screaming vocals. I, I like the frenetic yelling, but not quite getting their vocals. Kind of like Minor Thread yeah. or like... Dead Kennedy and a lot of hardcore when it progressed into the 90s and onward got like very very metal especially as far as the vocals go and I personally don't care for that yeah and exactly. this the best way I can describe this song imagine firing the band from a giant slingshot and watching them blast through the song as fast as they possibly can before hitting a wall I actually couldn't find the lyrics either, unfortunately, but um, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, it's literally like, salat, salat, salat. You know, they're screaming like, it's, I won't dish out salad. It's about the pain of a retail worker. You're working at McDonald's and you do not <laughs> no. want to serve another salad. No, like, you know, like, you know. You're forced to dish out salads. I think it's more about the expectations of, you know, women to be caretakers and, you know, work in the kitchen all day. Like, fuck off. I'm not going to dish out salads for you. I don't know. I think it's about a... a that, you know, the, about the people that see us at Zaxby's every time I go up, they just do not want to dish out that salad to me, but they are forced to dish out that salad. <laughs> see, it's a, Shut it's the a, fuck up there. <laughs> I feel like this this album has really two categories of songs. They're a very, I mean, they all have that comedic overtone in delivery, but like as far as like subject matter, there's really two things. There's societal expectations and communication issues, which is what the next track is about pardon. And, uh, you know, pardon is a pretty, that's a breakneck pace track oh like, man it's just blasts right in I was and, and they're say, just screaming you know pardon 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 and you know like i don't know what you mean like these very like easy to follow simple chants and choruses but it, it displays the message pretty well but yeah pardon fun track um nabe party with pocket brothers the song itself i'm not a fan of i think the like vocals are really bizarre on this one especially like the harmonizing at the end it's almost like some operatic shit but i don't think it works how do you guys feel about it overall? i don't like it can you repeat that i didn't like it it was all right <laughs> can, can, can you elaborate, elaborate? <laughs> says track is bad refuses to elaborate <laughs> this fucking guy i mean that's mainly like a lot of the album a lot of these songs as at least on the first side, sound pretty good. So the thing that really sets them apart would be like 
you know, like how catchy it is and the lyrics. And there's no lyrics, not really all that catchy. So what does it have? It's just, it blends in. In the context of this album, it is not as good as the other songs. That is fair. Mm. And I agree. But uh, yeah, uh, Leave Me Alone. No, Stay With Me. I would call this another, you know, really blistering anthemic track where they have, you know, this love-hate relationship with love and finding someone. And I think it's strongly reflected in the uh, incredibly angry group vocals. <laughs> it's it's kinda, the, yeah. leave me alone. No, stay with me. It's kind of like the introverts struggle. Yeah, and the, and the pacing of the song, too, it's very back and forth. It goes between, you know, like some softer, catchier vocals and then the really angry group chants. I think it works well. You know, it's very much like a ping pong, like back and forth. Absolutely, I agree. Can't really say anything bad about it, personally. And after that, we kind of get into the same subject matters that we were dealing with. I checked your cell phone. Very damning. Yes. It's kind (laughs) of... This track cracked me up. The main portion of it is just... Hawaii, Hawaii, Hawaii. Yeah. And then it just like speeds up, you know, just the why, 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 why? And there's the instrumental kind of picks up and gets faster and faster and faster. And it, it, I feel like the song is like a demonstration of the reaction of finding out your significant other is being unfaithful on their cell phone. There is actually almost kind of like an overarching like theme of this album. It starts with someone that just is just does not want to do this. And But they're just like, you know what? I need to get out there. I need to do all these things that people say are so great that society wants me to do. And that's the whole leave me alone, like, no, stay with me. They're like, yeah, no, they yeah. fight this. And then they finally get someone. And then their hatred for, like, love and romance is getting affirmed. There's, I checked your cell phone. And then there's just, you're, you're no, no hero. hero. Shut the fuck up. Man. <laughs> and then it co- and then so it's just like, it ends it. You know, it's, it's terrible. And then they're just like, God, I don't want to die alone. Yeah. <laughs> oh, let's go shopping. Yeah. It's like the, like the whole. So, <laughs> so many like roller coasters of emotions going on in this album. Yeah, this is their villain origin story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It coalesces when just, God, I don't want to die alone. <laughs> pretty, pretty quick track, pretty straightforward. Uh, and then we get into one of my personal favorites on the record. I put my love to you in a song. Jarsack. Yeah. What's well, Jazzrack? J A S. Jazzrack. That's it. That. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Jazzrack. Jarsack. <laughs> <laughs> I I wrote it as Jarsack on my notes. I did this at like two o'clock in the morning. Give me a break. So there's a lot of background to this track. Jazzrack, or the Japanese Society for Rights of Authors, Composers, and Publishers, is a Japanese copyright collection society founded in 1939. To this day, they are the largest musical copyright administration of society in Japan. 1939, huh? Yeah. Right at the height of the empire of Japan when they were fucking shit up in China. Fun times in Japan. But yes, so their main purpose is to act as like an intermediary or like a a trustee of copyright rights, such as like recording and performing rights or for uh, songwriters, you know, musicians and music publishers. You know, this organization has had a flurry of controversy and criticism thrown its way for monopolizing the copyright fee collection and management business, as well as its blanket fee model for copyright collection. So I actually found the Jazzrack website. They even have their blanket fee formula model up for people to look at so i found it here and it's um the number of times performed of jazz Rack's repertoire divided by the number of times performed plus the number of times performed of other copyright management entities repertoire that sounds convoluted as hell dude yeah 
they're basically screwing over anybody that wants to use a song or play a song or put it in like their show or their movie or something like there's just a flat fee on that for the number of times it's used for the number of times it's been performed. So let's say you put a song in a TV show every time it airs, you owe them money, bro. It's a fucking racket. They're just exploiting everybody, man. Now is that better or worse than how America does it? Like, is it a flat fee? No matter the artist, or is it like, do they scale it? Because I know I'd some bands... I think it's like 1.5%. What this formula is doing here is it's saying every time this is used, you have to pay this much money. Oh, so that's like even mm. worse. That's way yeah. worse. Yeah, yeah. Fair and balanced. <laughs> Economy. Go burr. <laughs> but yeah, so, so the song is kind of like a parody on that. It has a really sardonic tone. That is reflected in the backing vocals. You know, the song for money, song for you. And it's kind of Love just it. like a, a commentary on music copyright and music distribution in general. I think I think it's hilarious. It, it's a big fuck you to the jazz, jazz right? What's more it. punk than that? <laughs> yeah, I yeah. love it. It's kind of, it kind of reminds me of uh, Skinner's song on their second album, Second Helping when they literally talk shit about their own record company. <laughs> it was a song called Working for the MCA, and they just shit all over them. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah, and, and for anybody curious, I will actually leave a link to the website. The song itself, pretty hilarious. Kind of the same tone, you know, very fast-paced, very high energy, with some clever commentary. With that, we're moving on to Don't Call Me Mojo. Pretty uh, tragic song. Yeah. Um, I interpreted it as the group saying goodbye to their youth and mourning their younger days. Yeah. The loss of innocence. This song in particular is like a fucking roller coaster. You know, in the beginning, you've got that whole buildup of like the, the mojo, 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 mojo. And then it just explodes into that second part, you know, where she starts screaming around the 42nd mark for a few minutes. And then it just goes back into that same like groovy pace that it had in the beginning. I definitely get that. And also, it's very interesting, though, because I'm a woman, although I'm a woman, there's kind of, there's, they're looking at like the double edged sword that just gender identity in general brings. Hey, there's some good stuff. And also, society is doing this. So there's also some bad stuff. And, you know, it's kind of like a coming of age thing. You're losing your innocence. The more you grow up, you're trying to find your identity. It fucking sucks sometimes. Yeah. Honestly, a lot of these tracks, even though, you know, I'm not a, a Japanese woman, I find them very relatable. Of course. That story is applicable to anybody. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's kind of what I find compelling about a Toboki Beaver, at least from a writing standpoint, is, you know, they are relatable. They're not afraid to talk about problems regarding female oppression in society. And that's really what punk is about. Anybody can be punk. Yes. Punk is yes. about talking about subject matter that does not make a hit. Punk is about talking about anything you want to. Yeah, especially like a lot of punk is socially charged and politically charged, and this fits right into that. With that being said, where did you buy such a nice watch? Now, this is the part of the album where its pacing just goes to yeah, absolute this is, hell. So this is where we get into like the B-side, and the pacing just crashes and burns. Now, where, you, where did you buy such a nice watch is literally 30 seconds. No, I feel like overall it's kind of like got the same kind of themes. I checked your cell phone. It's but it was like, where, you know, where did you get such a nice watch? I didn't bother you that watch. Did another woman yeah. buy you that watch? Yeah, kind of the same mm -hmm. thing. And this, honestly, this track kind of has like a garage feel to it. The really distorted guitars. Kind of a, it's still fast paced, but it's more kind of like a slower jam than the rest of the album. Believe yeah. it or not, it's not the shortest track on the album. 
Yes, uh, that was 26 seconds. Then we get into George and Janice, which is somehow the most aggressive cut on the album and (laughs) only sitting at 43 seconds. Yeah, I feel like they would have absolutely wore themselves out laying this down if it was a minute and a half. Yeah, (laughs) there's no way it could be any longer. Yeah, no, this this track is like a punch in the face pace-wise. Yes. Like, you thought the rest of the album was fast, and yeah, it is. It's very fast, it's very frenetic and fiery, but this one smacked me right in the face. Oh, what's oh man, what's the hardest song on that album? George and Janice. George and Janice <laughs> does not fit the absolute just aggression that is this song. I love it, man. So what is the song actually about? Well it's kind of in that same like theme of romance and you know shitty relationships. And then we follow into first class side guy. Yep. Two songs in a row that are not even a minute long and super short. And then we get one of the longest songs in the record at two minutes, nine seconds, the first class side guy. I, I felt it was actually one of the popular tracks on the album. Only in like the lyrical style and delivery. You know, it's got a really infectious chorus. Yeah. And this is in the part of the theoretical plot line where she finds out that he is actually cheating for real. That all these kind of... You know, all these kind of like yes, suspects, like, where'd you get that watch? I checked your cell phone, you know, hmm, you're kind of, you're acting a little suspect. Like this time, no, he has been branded as a, not a third or a second class, but he is a first class side guy. This is about a, a player. This is about a cheater. And I think that's strongly reflected in the next little snippet. You're no hero. Shut up. Fuck you, man whore. <laughs> One of the best titles. <laughs> for a punk. This is this is yeah. one of the best titles for a punk song ever made. But it, I mean, it goes by so fast that I don't really have much to say about it. It's it's the eighteen title, seconds. It. Yeah, eighteen it's, seconds. It's pretty much like an interlude. Yeah, but it makes sense with uh, the rest of the track listing. This is where the album really just starts to like blast by. I mean, I don't want to die alone is probably the longest track at this point. It's very direct, you know, the the chorus itself is pretty funny and infectious, but also kind of sad, you know, it's literally just lonely death, lonely death, scary. Like, I don't, I don't want to die alone, nobody wants to die alone, yeah, but then, exactly. you know, at the end of the day, you are all you have. When you die, you're, that's it. There's just a lot of just disdain for, like, traditional romance in this album. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They still, it's like you were saying, the love-hate relationship with romance. Yeah, they almost- s- they still don't want to end up alone. It's almost kind of like, is there really like another way to do it? Or am I just going to have to go out here? Again? And keep getting hurt yeah. dealing with these bullshit expectations yeah. that have mm-hmm. been laid down for me. That's the way it goes. And man. that's the point they make. Another relatable yet direct track. Now we get into <laughs> another personal favorite of mine. A dirty old fart is waiting for my reaction. Another <laughs> crisp classic name. Yes, This is uh, technically the last full track on the album. And it's probably the most hardcore punk leaning track. It's, you know, it's very, it's fast, it's furious, and it's socially charged. When I first heard this, I was just, you know, imagining like, oh, it's some old man trying to cat call a young girl. And I was kind of right, but I dug into it more. And uh, the song is actually about the JK business in Japan. This is something that is largely overlooked by the Japanese government. Um, JK, or Joshi Kosei, or female high school student business, is the practice of compensated dating with adolescent girls. So, in a typical JK scenario, an adolescent girl will give out a leaflet inviting for a walking date. 
but it can also be things like talking at a cafe or massages, but oftentimes it will lead to sexual encounters. The line of work has led to a massive human trafficking problem in Japan, and the Japanese government has really done very little to stop it. You know, in the song itself, you know, there's this scenario of this old old man approaching this high school girl or this girl in general, and he's he's trying to call out and find out if she's a J.K. Walker. Very, very somber stuff. Powerful, pretty tragic stuff going on in this song, and it's literally like 50 seconds. A lot of things that I just did not know about until that this album brought up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, the one thing I will say, and I really appreciate about this album in general, is all these, like, important subjects that I really had no idea about until I started researching it. Yeah, and punk is all about that. I mean, this album is very punk. And I think it's really cool that they're just calling it out directly and straight how it is yeah. to the point and saying exactly what they mean and exactly what they want. They're, they're trying to bring awareness to serious issues. I mean, human trafficking is one of the biggest problems, not only in Japan, but in the in entire the world. world. Sex slavery is still real, man. Whenever you see it, you got to call it out. Oh, yeah. And I think this song was awesome and very bold for doing that in a very comedic way, too. Not only call it out, but you got to try to stop it because that shit is fucking horrible. It's almost so appalling that you just don't even really think it's a thing anymore. Like, if you, if you ask, like, a young adult, like someone, like if you asked me back when I was in high school, human trafficking, like, actual slavery numbers of the world, I would just say, like, man, that's not a thing. Slavery ended, you know, years ago, but no. No. It is nope. So, the numbers would blow your mind we're talking millions of people but yeah that's like the last real track on the album the last little section we'll just talk about it in one it's um do you want to send me a dm part one and two and then let's go shopping yeah and this (laughs) this three track stretch is literally like under a minute not even 45 seconds. I don't yeah, think. one of these songs is like seven seconds, isn't it? 11 seconds. 11. And in fact, correct me if I'm wrong, but are, are there any lyrics besides them just saying the title of the... Nope. Everything happens in this album, and it's just kind of like... You want me to send you a DM? <laughs> it's kind of like, that's just like everything has like happened. It's like... It's like you've just gotten in an airplane crash and just like you're perishing and you just land on the ground. And you're like, you want, you want to take another plane ride? <laughs> it's kind of like just, all that bad stuff has happened and you're just kind of like, all right, I guess I'm going to do it again. Strap Let's in. do it again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it kind of makes for an underwhelming finish to the album, I will say, because the album really ends at Dirty Old Fart, which is a great track. But um, the, the B side just, yeah. it really just, pe- it peters out so fast. It too goes, many short tracks, too many interludes. And I really hate that a lot of the interludes were just slapped into the second half. If they were spread out a little more, it would help with some of the pacing issues on this album. Yeah, like mix it up a little bit. But, you know, regardless, this is still a fun record. This is still a fantastic record and one that I've been going back to since it came out. And I probably will be going back to for the rest of the year. Yeah, it's a solid punk album. I have to give it some praise. Yeah, absolutely. How, how did you feel about it overall, James? Overall, I really don't have anything different to say than what you already have. I mean, the rhythm section is amazing. They're all, like, incredibly talented musicians. Yeah, we didn't talk about that too much, actually. Yeah. But in order for a lot of these tracks to work and not completely fall apart, the rhythm section has to be ridiculously tight. Yeah, and they definitely are incredibly tight. And they lay it down perfectly perfectly. 
I didn't hear any real mistakes that they made. You know, it, they must have a lot of endurance <laughs> because I mean, you to, fucking have to. Yeah, Holy shit! To, I imagine their live shows are fucking wild. The the band's chemistry is very impressive. They they've been playing for a long time and they really know each other's styles intimately. And I think that has helped them here. You know, they they've only released really two albums at this point, but it feels like they've known each other and they've they have known each other and been playing together for years. You know, overall it has some pacing issues. It peters out at the end. Can't say too much. I would give it an eight out of ten. I feel the same way. Overall, I really liked it. Uh, I will give it a little bit lower because of this, because the second half is, I would say it's about a seven and a half. Okay. I mean, that's fair because, you know, it really does just crash and burn at the end. And I understand that. And I agree. You know, uh, the album itself, you know, it takes the aggressiveness of Itacoma hits and just ramps it up to 11. You know, they lean even harder into their hardcore punk sound and it still manages to have the memorability of maybe poppier punk tracks or just pop tracks in general. You know, the album is a short, wild, and blistering ride from start to finish. And I had fun the whole time. You know, there are pacing issues and there are some disappointing moments where the B-side is literally like maybe five or six minutes at the most. But I did feel that these shorter snippets may have been spread throughout the record rather than most of them being grouped into the second half because that really did kill the experience for me a little bit. Regardless, I think Super Champagne is a great punk record and Otoboke Beaver stands as probably one of the best punk acts of the modern day. And I highly recommend this band and this project to anyone looking for something fresh in the modern punk landscape. So I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. Give it a listen. There's still great hardcore punk out there. It might not come from places you would expect, but it's still out there. Yeah, them and like Soul Glow right now are really keeping the hardcore punk genre (laughs) afloat, you know? And, you know, you got acts like Idols, but Idols, uh, their last album, I was not terribly crazy about uh, Crawler, but, you know, they've got a great catalog, too. And they don't really get as, would you call them hardcore punk? Because I, I would, don't think they get near no, as frenetic I would as... call them more like art punk. But yeah, you know, those three bands and, you know, there's probably a couple more that I'm not thinking of right now are kind of like the forerunners of the modern punk movement right now, I'd say. With that being said, any final thoughts, guys? Nope. All good. Alrighty then. Well, this is Off the Key Podcast. I'm your host, Matt, and we're out of here. Thanks, everybody. here and i wanted to give a shout out to le crembo for the intro and outro music 
I'm going to put his channel link in the YouTube version of this video, but for those on streaming services, it is spelled L-U-K-R-E-M-B-O. Please go check him out. Thanks, guys.